Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on December 8th, 2023. Alec Charis is one of the most passionate people in horticulture today. Having grown up on a family farm, his love of plants grew into a rewarding career that today finds him collaborating with breeders and agents across the globe, searching for trees and shrubs that will beautify the outdoor living experience for everyone. At Bailey Nurseries, a family-owned fifth-generation nursery with growing operations in Minnesota, Oregon, Washington, Illinois, and Georgia, Alec leads the marketing and product development functions across the company. This includes successful consumer brands, including First Editions, Shrubs and Trees, Endless Summer Hydrangeas, and Easy Elegance Roses, all brands that Bailey owns and manages worldwide. These brands are well-known in many parts of the world, and Bailey continues to breathe new life into their plants through extensive breeding and trialing to ensure people have lasting success. In addition to his role as Chief Marketing and Product Development Officer at Bailey, he also serves on the Board of Directors of the National Garden Bureau and the Corporate Membership Committee of the American Society of Landscape Architects. Alec is passionate about bringing new ideas, people, and plants to life. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Alec. We're delighted that you could be with us today. I am as well. And I have to say that I love Bailey Nursery, and I was there this summer for the 75th anniversary of the Garden Communicators that Bailey's was so nice to host. What a beautiful place. Oh, thank you. We had so much fun doing that. I remember that night. It was hot, but thank you for coming. And yeah, we uh, we had a great chance to walk folks through the greenhouse where it was even hotter, but still a lot of fun. And I think us gardeners and nursery folks just embrace that anyway, right? So, Alec... I'd like to get into it, as we often do, and just hear a little bit about who you are and what part of the country did you grow up in and where did you go to school and what were your first encounters with plants that might have indicated that you had a future professionally? 
Okay, well, I'll try not to roll it back too far, Hal. Otherwise, we might be here for a while. But <laughs> I have had a long-standing interest in plants. I don't think that I realized it early on in my life, but I grew up on a family farm in northwest Minnesota, up in the Red River Valley, small town, uh, Crookston, Minnesota, uh, very close to the Minnesota-North Dakota border. My dad raised uh, wheat, barley, sugar beets. That was my introduction to plants and to agriculture as a young kid. And so was driving tractors and pickup trucks and all the things, you know, growing up and just working in the field and just gave me an appreciation for that lifestyle. And as I grew up, I decided to pursue a degree at the University of Minnesota. So moved down to Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And I wasn't quite sure what path I wanted to take. I didn't immediately go into an ag program. I, I was exploring some other opportunities or thoughts, as I think hopefully any kid would do. And uh, eventually realized that plants were a passion and started working actually at a retail garden center while in college uh, down in the Twin Cities area and quickly saw that that could be an opportunity to enter horticulture in that world. So eventually got my degree in environmental horticulture at the University of Minnesota and evolved into a career in retail for a number of years. And then finally, after being a customer for a long time of Bailey Nurseries, they were hiring for a territory sales representative position. And here we are. So I've really enjoyed the benefits of working for a great family-owned business that's constantly not only focused on innovation, but has a long-standing heritage of caring for their employees and the environment around them. And so now it's my job to continue to carry on those traits as we continue to evolve forward in our business. And so, yeah, that's that's probably the long and short of it. So today, my official role, the fancy title that I don't really get too caught up on is Chief Marketing and Product Development Officer. And really what that means is I, I have the opportunity to work with just a group of amazing, amazing people from our marketing and consumer brand teams. But then really at the very beginning of the process, when it comes to procurement and breeding, of new products as well. So product development, breeding, marketing, and brand are all areas that I get to work with. And uh, so every day is new and fresh and pretty exciting. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's, there's not many family-owned businesses that are five generations, number one. And number two, you went to a really excellent school, the University of Minnesota, which the more I am in this industry, the more people I meet that have come from there, which has a very strong horticulture program. And it's really nice that you were able to not only stay close to your area from where you came from, but to work for a company like Bailey that has such a good reputation and is globally known for the work that they do and the breeding that they do. I really agree with that. And I appreciate all those kind words. And, you know, I think culture is always one of those things that you don't really know about until you get into it. But then once you're into it, you realize how special it is. And I think that that's a hallmark of our approach. You know, when I was first hired at Bailey back in, oh, when was it now? 2001. On one of the very first weeks, you would be taken through our bear storage facilities where you're doing winter grading of bear trees and shrubs. And so you get a chance to not only do some on-the-job training and learn about processes and plants and all those things, but more importantly, to really just get to meet people and all the people that are growing the plants and moving the plants around the nursery and all that. And it was not uncommon to meet someone and you would learn quickly, oh, yes, I've been with Bailey for 15 years and I've been with the company for 25 years. And that was... 23 years ago to this day, we still have that. And that's a hallmark and really a testament to a lot of good people, uh, hopefully doing a lot of good work. So your home office, where's corporate located, Alan? 
So yeah, our company, we've actually got locations throughout the country. Our corporate office is located in Minnesota. It's a small town called Newport, which is really a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. So very close to the Twin Cities area. And so we've got production ground here in Minnesota and the surrounding area. It's not all one site. We've got farms kind of spread out throughout that southern metro area from greenhouse propagation to bare root field production to finished plant production, both on the shrub side as well as pot and pot container trees. And then in addition to our headquarters here in Minnesota and our total production Acreage-wise, it's not too far off. We're about the same size in a number of sites in Oregon. So we've got similar growing sites out there, but certainly a very unique and different mix of products and plants. And certainly that gives us the opportunity to take advantage of the climate and the soil and the growing conditions in Oregon, as well as those in the Midwest. So it allows us to spread out risk. It allows us to grow the best plant in the best place. And certainly many varieties that may or may not grow in one or the other locations also. So those are the two main production areas. We've also got a farm south of Chicago that's focused on finished plants. And then our breeding farm and our R&D is done predominantly in Athens, Georgia. And so, and in fact, I just got back from there last night and got a chance to see our breeding team and all the good people that are helping us uh, bring new plants I to market. I have to ask, did you see Michael Durr? I didn't see him this time. And if we have time for a good Michael Durr story, I've got one for you. Let's do let's, it. Yeah, let's but, do uh, it. I love um, Michael. He's so nice. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, did you see Elvis? You know, it's like, did you see <laughs> Michael He's the nicest guy. And if you have a plan question, you could always call him. That's what's so nice about him. Well, for sure. And, and in fact, uh, have, have the opportunity to at minimum exchange an email from time to time if we don't connect by phone, uh, certainly. You know, he is he is a rock star. And if there is a rock star in the world of ornamental horticulture, uh, not only in, in North America, but I would say worldwide, uh, even in his, you know, his name is recognized in many places that we go. And when we talk to our customers, even in other countries, you know, uh, his name comes up. And for good reason, he's always been a force in our industry. My story is as my career evolved at Bailey, I've been with the company for 23 years and started out in, in, in territory sales for the first 12 and then uh, moved into our marketing function. And at about that time, as I became our marketing manager, we had just uh, been, you know, Bailey had been collaborating with Dr. Durr for many years, ever since the onset of endless summer hydrangeas and, and certainly before that as well. And he had been doing his own breeding over time. And eventually, uh, as the relationship grew, there was the opportunity for Bailey to uh, purchase his company. And that's really the, the foundation of our own breeding program today, which is called Bailey Innovations. But as I, as we talked about my background and coming from northern Minnesota, you know, my awareness and, and education in plants that are suitable for those those southeastern U.S. climates wasn't that super. And, you know, certainly we have brands and products that we are growing nationally. And, and so it was an opportunity for me to go down and, and spend the day with Mike. And like any good professor, he took me under his wing for the day and we hopped in the car. He picked me up at the hotel at six in the morning and uh, it was a gauntlet day. We went through the whole thing and when and visited a number of nurseries, a couple of arboretums that he's, you know, very active with in the area in Athens, Georgia area and throughout Georgia. And the funny part was his energy is just incredible. And so here I am in the passenger seat. He's driving, you know, every which way. I don't even know where we are. And and as we're driving, I'm, it's become very evident to me that he's got one eye on the road and two eyes on the ditch <laughs> because he's looking, he's looking for plants and he's looking into the forest. So, you know, I just, I said, there's three eyes right there. And, and the reality is I sometimes wondered how much time he was focusing on the road, how much time he was focusing on the forest. But 
uh, it was pretty energizing. Just, you know, we're, we're talking about plants the whole time and we're talking about breeding opportunities and discovery opportunities. And I, I came back with a notebook of ideas and things that, uh, you know, that, that we came out of the day. So between visiting arboretums and learning about plants and also finding being introduced to, to sweet tea and, and a lot of other Southern sweets along the way, it was a pretty darn fun day with him and very memorable and certainly has built a, um, an opportunity to have a relationship with someone who certainly we all respect, I think, very well, much. Well, and I also want to say that it was a conversation with him that this podcast came about. And um, oh, yeah, right? so he's influenced so many people. And um, uh, we took up the charge of planting a trillion trees because that was one of his causes. So that's definitely something that we can thank him for, too. Yeah, it's, it, I guess it's one of the, uh, would you call it a meme? He said uh, he, he wished the tree care industry could hitch its wagons to the climate catastrophe. And uh, it was uh, crystallized so well, and even I batted around and use it in ways to market the podcast. It, uh, it really said it. And you must have learned a lot in terms of what Bailey's looks for in terms of characteristics, you know, uh, plants, trees, and what you learned from Dr. Durr. What, what are the, some of the things you look for? Well, you know, it, 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 thanks, Hal, and I agree. And, 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 you know, Bailey had been introducing plants well before we started our own breeding program and, and, and taking on the reins of what he had started. Um, you know, we had discovered our plants, uh, doing a lot of discoveries through our fields and in our propagation programs. And a lot of times in the case of ornamental horticulture and nursery horticulture, uh, discovery is is one of the biggest methods to find a new plant, but certainly by taking on breeding and that overall function and and the work that's gone into it now, you know, it does definitely has helped us formalize you know what we are looking for when it comes to bringing good products to market. And I would say that it was also exciting before I get into some of those characteristics is. Uh, to see some of the new talent that is coming along that's bringing those new, helping us bring some of those new products to market. Uh, one of the people who does our breeding today, his name is David Roberts, and he's really our director of plant breeding, and, and we wouldn't be where we are without him. And it's that same kind of passion and vision that Dr. Durr brings to this industry as well. You need people like that who are looking for those creative ideas, uh, looking for opportunity, looking for gaps. So when we think about bringing great plants to market, that's the first iteration, great plants. We are not a company that believes in quantity over quality when it comes to bringing new introductions to market. And we use our consumer brands many times to be an avenue to market those plants to the consumer, whether it's endless summer hydrangeas, first editions, shrubs and trees, or easy elegance roses. All three of those brands are unique in their composition in terms of the products that are offered. Therefore, they have their own strategy and message to the marketplace. And we work to back those promises up through our breeding and through our plant introductions. And so the criteria for endless summer, as an example, for endless summer hydrangeas might differ some from first edition shrubs and trees based on the, the type of products that we're, we're looking to create. But high level ultimate goals are number one, it has to be good for the end user. It has to be good for the home garden. It has to be something that they can be successful with. We don't want to create any opportunity for frustration or disappointment for anyone across the board. And that goes right to the grower as well. And that's one of the heritages and foundations that Bailey has in its own, in the hallmark of who we are. 
growing is our passion. It's what we do. And so a lot of times we might put plants through the paces and we might really love them internally. And then you put those into your production trials. And eventually you put those production trials and you start to build larger populations of plants uh, and you get those in the hands of of your growers. Sometimes you win and sometimes they're the first ones that are raising their hands saying, "Mm, I don't know. Uh, There's there's some red flags here. What do we do? Uh, And can we work through those? Can you still bring those plants to market or do you need to go back to the drawing? board. So really that satisfaction is first and foremost. And then you can get into all the other attributes and all the other things that you want to think about when it comes to being a unique plant, you know, bigger flowers, earlier flowers, bigger fruit, sterility, all those other criteria that all they all matter. But at the end of the day, they don't matter if you can't be successful growing it and the consumer can't be successful in their own home garden. You know, one of the things that I think about with your nursery, you're in a growing zone that is not like ours. You're in a zone four, if I'm correct. Uh, not not according to the USDA. Thankfully, we are now in zone five, but I don't think that, that changes much. <laughs> right, but that's zone four. It's funny because when we used to have the flat, when I used to work at the flower show, people from your area and Chicago would come down to the flower show and say, we want to have what you have. We want to have plants that you have. How come we can't have them while growing zones are so different, dramatically different? But it was the influence of that zone four that was so critical with the endless summer hydrangea that it could bloom on new wood. It would have never been noticed if it wasn't a cold winter and have a macrophylla blooming in the summertime when it would have had its dead buds on it or its buds affected. And I have to say here, because I have to reveal that I helped introduce the endless summer hydrangea, which I thought was absolutely amazing. Up until that point, it was the grandma's plant. And then when Bailey's introduced it and it the blooms bloomed on new wood, I don't think that people realize the implications of a macrophylla having blooms on new wood and what it meant to the growing industry as far as cut flowers go. It meant so much to so many industries. And we talked about Mike Durr and his involvement. He was obviously very involved in that as well. That really did changed the industry, I believe, and it really set the tone for what we, a lot of the things that we see today at a consumer level from our industry. And I think it's also important to remember that no matter what the marketing is, and no matter how good the genetics are, because at the end of the day, plants are plants. And I think that it's our job to help the consumer see the potential of what a plant could bring to their home garden. And at the same time, part of the joy of gardening also is a little trial and error along the way. But, you know, hydrangea macrophylla is such a, a shining star example of it's a group of plants that were never really intended necessarily to be maybe in the upper Midwest. That's not their native condition, you know, Japan and coastal areas. And you see them so much more along the, the eastern U.S. and things like that, just because of the, the humidity and the, the water next to the ocean and all the things that that you get from those conditions. But I think the endless summer was instrumental in showing consumers that it was possible to enjoy hydrangea macrophylla in the Midwest and other areas. However, it's still our job to help consumers know where they can best be successful. And I think that's where breeding plays a giant role in delivering upon that success because endless summer has been in the industry now for 21 years. And you think about today versus 21 years ago and the number of wonderful cultivars that are on the market 
market today, including in endless summer, there's just been incredible advancements in breeding that are only bringing even more opportunity for the home gardener, for the landscaper, for the grower, because of what the role breeding can have. And so now you're seeing plants that, you know, even in the summer, you'll see it in some of the bush gardens where it won't rebloom that reliably. It's not the plant's fault. It's just the environment. And now you're seeing new introductions and not to drop names of, of new plants too much on this podcast, but there are plants that recently we introduced one called Popstar. It's a lace cap. It. It's a great plant. It's a little guy that gets about two feet tall and just will bloom his head off. So when we look at those things from an overall breeding perspective and our goals of what we want to deliver to the home gardener, to the to the industry, there are plants today that aren't making the cut from our breeding program that 15, 20 years ago easily would have been on the market. But because of the breeding and the progression of taking those characteristics, whether it's rebloom, disease resistance, you know, tighter internode lengths, heat tolerance, you know, waxier foliage, you name it. All those things matter because at the end, if we can, you know, continue to bring those types of plants to market, then everyone will have more success. I believe that it was the endless summer that actually spurred the breeding programs of all hydrangeas across the board because of the hardiness, which leads to the tree hydrangea that is well known from Bailey's Hydrangea paniculata, which is one of the tree forms. And that one there is a great performer. Yeah, in the world of Hydrangea paniculata, you know, we talked a bit about Hydrangea macrophylla, but that's another category that's really taken off, especially I would say really in the last five years. Uh, it's just it's just really uh, an incredible phenomenon to watch. Much like what we talk about in Hydrangea macrophylla, you're looking for more flowers, you're looking for stronger flowers, you're looking for stronger stems, you're looking for large plants, you're looking for medium-sized plants, you're looking for short plants, all of those things. Uh, in addition to that, when we start talking about trees and the roles that hydrangeas can play, uh, Hydrangea paniculata trees have really become a very strong landscape staple in many parts of the country, especially in the, the cooler climates where you can achieve that beautiful pigmentation change that happens in, in August when you get those cooler nights. And so, for example, from our program, one of my absolute favorite hydrangea trees is a variety called Berry White. Uh, it's got just, you know, the, the plant is actually from European breeding, but uh, it doesn't matter if it's from France or if it's from the U.S. It's a great, great plant and, and it's just got strong stems strong body, nice presentation. You know, so whether it's that variety or a host of others that are on the market today, I think the future is bright in that category because the consumer can use those in their home gardens as an accident plant. You can even use them in a patio container if you wanted to do something like that, just like many other plants. So hydrangea is definitely a bridge between shrubs and trees and how those plants can be enjoyed in our landscapes. And certainly, you know, I, I believe that's the case of a lot of other shrubs uh, in addition to just hydrangea. And uh, another group of plants that I, I, I think are really important to talk about maybe aren't so much your traditional big forested tree types, but thinking about climate change, thinking about the needs of how we bring plants to market and how, what we breed for, drought tolerance is one of those incredibly important things we simply can't ignore. And uh, while we might not consider these big shade trees, when we think about ornamental trees, Vitex is one of those groups of plants that frankly are, are still a bit under, they're a little unknown yeah. to many. Um, You're right about that. And yeah. I think that that's a crime. <laughs> I agree. And, and, and so maybe this can be the kickstart to helping, helping that along because, you know, Vitex, there have been some forms that were sold for years. Uh, there's been a variety of Shoal Creek, which has been on the market for a long time. He's commonly seen in Texas and, and throughout the drier parts of the, the South and Southwest. 
But again, through a breeding, through evaluation and discovery, you know, just like the world of hydrangea paniculata, now there's a lot of nice smaller compact shrub sizes. There's larger sizes. There's, you know, in, in the form of shrub or even small trees. And not only are they exceptionally drought tolerant, but they are pollinator magnets. And so to be able to provide a food source to wildlife in addition to being a solution in drought tolerance. And again, to have an opportunity to have a range of plants that you can either use as a small tree or even a small shrub, depending on the varieties. That's just super exciting. And actually, the Chicago Botanical Garden has shown us, and we've done some trialing as well, and even up into Zone 5, Vitex can be enjoyed almost as a dieback shrub, like you might use Budlia or or other woody plants as well, depending on how much you're willing to, to do a little pruning in the springtime. I just wanted to learn a little bit more about Vitex. Sure. Uh, how big does it get? It depends on the, the species that we're talking about. There's you know, a number of varieties, probably the most commonly found today are Vitex Agnes Castus varieties. And so, uh, for example, uh, we have a variety in, in first editions called Queen Bee. And that variety uh, is is probably anywhere from probably six to eight feet tall at maturity, depending on, on where it's located. The mother plant is down our, at our Athens farm. And that's about the size down in Georgia. So I'd say that would be true. But certainly as you moved north, that size might come down slightly. There's a newer variety that's barely on the market yet. There's one called Violet Mist, which is a much more of a shrub form. So again, that's what I'm trying to illustrate is there's a lot of range and, and opportunity. But in addition to that, uh, there's Vitex purpurea. And there's a variety called Flipside, which does get a bit larger and is more of a truly a a large shrub to uh, truly a, a, a small tree. They'll get woody stems on it and... And it's really a beautiful plant because it gets these beautiful purplish blue flowers uh, and a unique leaf. But when you flip that leaf over, it's got a purple undertone to it. So it's got some ornamental characteristics to it, even when it's not in flower. But again, incredibly functional and highly ornamental, especially for the, the zone six in southern climates. And it has some drought tolerance then. Oh, no question. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's, I think that's it's really important that we be constantly thinking about that. Yeah, for sure. There was a stand of, I think it was Shoal Creek. In Dallas Arboretum, it was in a serpentine alley. I never forget it because I have photos of it. And I show people and they're like aghast when they see it. That it created, um, they must have been about 10 or 12 feet tall. Maybe a little shorter, but they created a beautiful alley that you could walk through. And I was just amazed at that. And they said that it was extremely drought tolerant. We were we were there on a 104 degree day in July in Dallas, Texas. And it was unbelievable to see that and see it so resilient. Um, but there's also one that I saw at um, the American Horticulture Society in Alexandria, Virginia, which was a very, very old tree. And it was very tall. It was about 12 feet also. And it was well known across the country because of its age and because of how tall it was and where it was growing in the Washington, D.C. area. It was gorgeous. And when I started to see that, I said, I'll have to teach it because it's something that everybody should know about, you know. Yeah, and what's so nice about the category is you're not just constricted to one flavor. You know, you've got blue flowering varieties, you've got white flowering, you've got pink, you've got red. 
almost purple. And and uh, again, I think I think just because of the environmental concerns that are upon us, I'm glad that we're paying more attention to them now than, than maybe we did 20 years ago. I think it's one of those of many plant groups that, that has value long term. Yeah, and we have some beautiful ones at Longwood too, where oh, I yeah. teach. And yeah, sure. uh, you know, I'm always impressed. You know, the students are like, "What is this? I've never seen this before." Huh? Now it's on your woody plant list. <laughs> Right. Just to jump off a little bit, since you're Minnesota born and bred, what forest tree issues is uh, Minnesota facing? Well, like like most northern uh, states, uh, emerald ash borer has been, you know, really the the, the biggest threat and and thing that that and change that we have seen in our natural forests and, and urban forests over the last how long has it been? Ten, probably fifteen years. 1520, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think back to when I was first at Bailey, you know, ash trees were just a huge commercial crop for the company. And now today, we, we still grow a handful, but, you know, most of those are being sold to, you know, the prairie states where you know, the, the, the insect pressure isn't as high because there's not so much of a, a forest canopy where the insect will spread itself. So I'm, I'm pretty much talking about, you know, northern Minnesota, Dakotas, uh, areas like that. So yeah, I, I would say that ash certainly has, has, has fallen off. I mean, certainly even before then, and with ash borer has has and always was one of those additional issues, you know. But wherever there is an issue, there is an opportunity, and uh, and I think that that's the things that we think about in terms of you know some of the things that the urban forestry is using in their mix, and it's really you know I, I really appreciate how uh, uh, urban foresters and cities have paid attention to that issue, and they're putting more diversity into into those urban plantings. I mean, it used to be. You'd go through this, the, the streets of Minneapolis and they would be lined with elm, American elms on either side of the road. And it was commonplace. Well, guess what happens when you're planting monoculture populations like that? And so now today you're seeing a great deal more diversity that includes a, a host of, 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 of other things from a wide range of genera. So, you know, everything from maple to oak to ginkgo to, you know, you name it, you're seeing it more and more. And that's that's a very positive thing. Speaking of elm. You have a St. Croix elm, American elm, that is supposed to be extremely resistant to Dutch elm disease. It's more of a, a wide spreader than it is the tall. It's like 70 to 90 feet wide and 60 to 75 feet tall. And I'm always looking at different trees and shrubs to teach and to talk about. And this one here looks like it might be a stellar plant to maybe slowly inch into areas that have lost their elm trees that could provide a, a nice hallmark. Yeah, St. Croix is one of those plants that, you know, every plant has a, a story, right? And and, right. and our story is, it is all the things that you just mentioned. And, and, and we're also slow on the propagation side and the nursery side. So our supply hasn't been as consistent as, as we would have liked it to be. But all the things that you just spoke to about the variety are very true. It has shown natural disease resistance. Certainly not a... <laughs> <laughs> you know, certainly one of those those trees that needs its space. So, uh, you know, if you have an, a typical city lot and you're using a, a variety such as this, then yeah, it, it might gobble up some real estate, but definitely a, a very strong, resistant variety to Dutch elm. But I think we also need to do a better job of bringing plants to market too. Well, now that one there, and I worked with the Lenai Lenape Indians at the Penn Treaty Park, which was where William Penn supposedly signed this agreement with the Indians underneath an elm tree. And when I see the picture of it, 
originally from Benjamin West. I see that really wide elm, which would, this one here would be perfect for that location (laughs) because it's a huge park and it would definitely do well in a location like that. But, you know, there are places that can tolerate a large tree like that along a waterway, along a river or along a, a creek somewhere. And that's where the mother plant was found. That's exactly the environment that you would expect to find it. So that's where it was discovered. But yeah, I think to your point about, you know, big trees and and all those things, that's the exciting part too is, is, uh, you know, there are other trees that that doesn't fit the need. And we talk about those, you know, that need for diversity. Uh, You know, there's many, many others. I think of one that's one of my personal favorites and people might, you know, it might go, oh, that's not such a big deal, but I like it. Uh, It's a Freeman maple called Matador. Love it, love it, love and, it. And, and, you know, I, I just love it because I, you know, how how many times do we talk with with our friends or or whatnot, and and people would need a tree, and they go, I want something fast growing, and that's not always the first thing that people might be really needing, uh, because you know, fast trees tend to mean weak branches or mess, and maybe not the best solution. And so, Matador is one of those happy solutions, happy intermediaries, where again, Autumn Blaze is a as a variety, great variety has been planted for so long and so much that the landscape kind of gets tired of it. And so to have have uh, some other flavors is a good thing. And Matador is one of those uh, shining stars to me because it, it does still have a good typical Acer Freemanite growth rate to it, but it's got nice, upright, narrow branching to it, uh, heavily branched. And the fall color comes on, especially in, in the northern climates, it comes on actually just a week or so later than some of the other early fall color, which I think is an advantage because so many plants that get that early fall color tend to then defoliate and you don't have much left to, to enjoy and, and matador persists beautifully uh, well into the fall. And it's a large tree, but it's not a broad tree, meaning you can use it in a lot of urban spaces. And just to me, uh, one of those plants that just doesn't get enough love. Well, the um, Freeman line, I was I actually did some drawings and I put them online and they were Freeman examples. Um, and they're a naturally occurring, if in case people don't know what it is, it's a it's a naturally occurring cross between a red maple and a, a silver maple, uh, Acer saccharinum. And when we have these crazy weather events, that's my my theory is that we this is when we get those crazy crosses to accommodate future weather conditions. And the Freeman maple is fast growing because it takes that genetics from the silver maple, but the narrower portion of it is taken from the red maple where it's not as wide. And I love them. I think that they should be used much more than they are. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're going to kind of stay on the Northern team for one more idea, then we start, you, you, you know, we're kind of, kind of taking this trip from big, broad, stately trees like St. Croix elm. And now we're kind of bringing it into the, the world of Matador, which I think is more of that common size that you would want to see in almost any urban yard. And then, and then there's, you know, certainly in urban conditions or even for screens that are beautiful. There's so much discovery and innovation happening in upright forms and things like that. One of my favorites is actually a variety that came out of Jeffrey's nursery uh, in, in the Winnipeg, Manitoba area. And that's a, a variety of uh, Plyophila betula called Parkland Pillar. And it's just, you know, there's so much disease pressure, insect pressure on, on birch, you know, and you just have to, you have to know that that's just part of what birch bring. But Parkland Pillar is just one of those really beautiful forms because it has great yellow fall color, uh, can be uh, just a, a great space-saving tree provided it's got the the right environment and it's happy. So yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fun work being done in the world of trees, and you know it's it's not as quick of a payoff for a breeder or a, uh, or or, or discovery. 
shrubbery uh, when when uh, as it as relates to shrubs, where the life cycle of, of shrub breeding typically you can see from the very beginning of, of when you see some unique characteristics from the time you identify that to bring something to market that can be anywhere from eight or ten years in the shrub world with trees, you might as well double that. It's you're talking fifteen to twenty years before you uh, might bring a new tree to market. So sometimes some of the new trees that you're talking about are trees that maybe we've had on the market for five or six years, but that's okay. Uh, you know, it's just a longer cycle. Well, and you know, when you're teaching this and you, you have to talk to students about it, I think it's really important for them to know, and I've said this to my classes many times, you know, somebody may be working on trees for their lifetime and it, they may only introduce three in their lifetime. Three. Well, someone who's right. working on perennials or annuals, they might introduce hundreds of, of new plants. And the parkland pillar has the most beautiful bark, the Japanese birch. It has a really beautiful white bark. It looks so stark white that if you wanted to lighten up your landscape in the wintertime in the north, that's a really good one to do it with. Yeah, so so our breeding, as a result, we aren't doing a ton of tree breeding. To be perfectly honest, a lot of the tree discoveries are either happening from what I just said, either a discovery in our production fields or through other partners. And so, for example, we're working with you know, land grant universities like the University of Minnesota, where we've we've been able to to introduce or or sell varieties from their successful breeding programs and and things like that. And and I think that's where it's, a, it's actually a really good marriage for our industry because you, you, you've got that long-term work being done at a university level or by some botanical gardens, whereas our commercial breeding is more on the shrub side because we want to bring great plants to market. Let's be honest, we also want to be profitable. And so you you know, you know need to marry out what that, that's going to be. And so that's typically, for us at least, how we look at new plants many times is we're kind of controlling not 100% of our own destiny when it comes to woody shrubs. I mean, certainly we, we introduce and work with a lot of breeding partners across the globe. But a lot of the breeding does come from our own program too, whereas trees tend to come from other sources. It's interesting stuff. Anecdotally, even I have talked about how we observe in the Delaware Valley how the white-barked birches are barely around. If right. they have the perfect little microclimate, you might see one. So. It's interesting that something like Platophila, Parkland, Pillar, you know, might be an option. And I guess what I'm coming around to observing with this discussion is in terms of the big tree breeding and this northern movement of the hardiness zones is that Minnesota, Milwaukee, St. Paul, everyone's going to have a need for tougher drought tolerant, heat tolerant trees. You know, and actually, uh, Alec, the follow-up question when we talked about emerald ash borer, and I'm from the Midwest as well, and I've seen that that demise, but I've also seen mysterious oak decline. You know, I, my brother lives up near the Illinois-Wisconsin border, and I know the foresters there are kind of scratching their heads. They don't really have a pathogen. Right. And I I just I continue to see and with, with discussions like you that the the that, that breeding is going to continue to address what big cities are going to need in terms of the next super tree, the next <laughs> tough tree. Right. Bit of ed- editorial on my part, but well, I, I love the editorial, and I, and I fully agree with it. And and I, and I think that you know, in, in the role that I'm in, I, I get the opportunity. I'm so lucky to be exposed to so many people and so many groups uh, or schools of thought 
I was just recently the uh, at the uh, the American Society of Landscape Architects. They had their convention actually here in the Twin Cities. We were quite lucky. That was a quite easy an easy trip for me. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, it's really exciting to talk to organizations and, and professionals in that realm as well, because there's absolutely a recognition of those needs that you just spoke of. And and that's the exciting part about being in this industry is every day is different. Every year is different in, in the things that may have been important five or six years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they, they evolve and they change. And you see that also influence design. You also see it influence how people come into our industry, whether it's people that want to go into landscape architecture, landscape design, or people that want to come into nursery production. The things that matter to people today are driven largely by the issues that we're talking about. And a lot of those issues are a result of more and more awareness about climate change, more and more awareness about the needs and the role that plants bring to all of us when it comes to mental health, uh, a better way of life. You know, how my mom and dad worked and how I work today and, and our values may or may not fit the values of, of the younger generations that are coming into the workforce, whether it's horticulture or any industry. Uh, and so those purposes, it's really exciting to see young people embrace that and what effect that that has on how we view horticulture. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about your company. You have such a range of ages of people that work there. Not only <laughs> not only the young people, but I mean, you have, when I saw one of the owners holding her grandbaby and I thought, oh, there's another generation coming up. They're going to be working here too. <laughs> the idea yeah. of having this full range. And I think one of the things that you were saying is, you know, there's change. And I think in our horticulture industry, we have to deal with change all the time because of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are very resistant to change. And we have to watch how quickly things are changing. And we have to be able to change with that. We do. I think that that's the joy of life. You get to experience change and whether you experience or maybe you're somebody that's driving change, all of those things are just a, a constant and that's okay. That's good. And, you know, I think about when I first joined this company and you would go around and we're talking about that very example of, of that 10 year employee who was, you know, talking about what they did and how long they were in the industry and all those things. And you'd go see how we operate as a production nursery and you know, you'd be taught how trees are growing field and how they can move from a greenhouse to the field and how long they, they're in the field and why they're in the field for that long. Those conversations also evolve because the way we're growing trees in terms of some of the technology or some of the practices that we're using as a, as a production nursery, whether they're driven by climate, whether they're driven by labor, whether they're driven by just technology, whatever those things might be, uh, that's exciting. That's really exciting to, to watch and to, to be able to, to go to one of our facilities and see a robotic transplanter moving these little tissue cultured micro cuttings around at a pace where it can produce a planted flat in a tenth of the time that it would take someone to do that by hand. That was not even in the mix. 20 years ago. And so it's an opportunity to allow our employees to learn and evolve as well. I mean, don't worry about a shortage of jobs, my friends. There's plenty of work in the nursery industry. So technology is not taking jobs away. In fact, it's just making quality of life and, and the work that's being done in nurseries all that much better because nursery production is not for the faint of heart. It's, it's hard work. And so the more you can embrace that, it only betters our industry and it betters uh, the experience for those that will take that baton into the next decade. I think you're so right, Sophie people know how grueling nursery 
work is and the amount of physical toll it takes on the body over time and having robotic operations can certainly help the human health of the industry. And that also spurs on other ideas from people who might typically be on the line have now been freed up and they can actually look at something and say, hey, here's another idea that we could take and utilize. And Hal and I talk about that a lot too, you know, how things have changed in our industry. I mean, we're both arborists. He's a climbing arborist. I'm a ground arborist. Right now, there are more arborists on the ground than there are in the, in the trees because we're, we're, you know, working at the ground level. We don't just focus on the tree management part of it, but clear across the board, urban forestry, for example. Um, so yes, industry has changed. And I think you're right about being able to have employees be flexible that way is, is critical for success of a company like yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just fun to see the ideas that come in and, and you get to mesh what's worked in the past and then ask the question, could this work in the future? Uh, we talked about movements, Eva, you and I, and trends. We had that discussion earlier in the week. And I can clearly remember from my college days, you know, all of us are tree nerds looking at good old American Nurseryman magazine and you know, they'd be promoting the next big tree. And I, for some reason, I have this image in my head, a cover photo, Leland Cypress, cover photo, Bradford Calorie Pear. These are the <laughs> next big trees. Now, granted, that was in the mid-70s, uh, but it does kind of show how the trends are. And I, I think today, one thing we hear about a lot, and maybe it's just because we're in the Northeast and we're close to New York City or whatever, but the press is always covering native plants, and pollinators, you know, and the importance of growing oaks. You know, we get the uh, the Doug Tallamy soundbite quite regularly, and are, you know, a reminder of the need. So it is interesting to not only observe that, but then to see how the industries respond. Yeah, we've had so many different groups that we've come in contact with over the course of the last couple of years, just because we we want to talk to architects, we want to talk to landscape designers, we want to talk to growers, we want to talk to consumers. And exactly what you just said is prevalent and it's on everyone's minds. And that's okay. That's good. That's an exciting opportunity for our industry to continue to find those those nuggets that that fit that need to address more food source for, for bees and butterflies and pollinators, yeah. and drought tolerance, like we talked about a bit. And, uh, you know, we were talking about the, the change of the USDA zone map. And, you know, and right. we were, <laughs> when we were down at the, the breeding farm, uh, our breeding farm, Bailey Innovations, uh, actually just yesterday, we were walking around uh, uh, the nursery a little bit. And what we kind of laughed about and joked about was that plants don't read plant tags, uh, which is a very true statement. And so, <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll continue to find plants that work in the best places they can. And then uh, ultimately, our goal is to educate people on how they can be successful too, and just bring the you know the generations of gardening into the next century or whatever you want to call it. It must be interesting for you to travel be- between the South and Minneapolis-St. Paul because you're when you're down near Athens and I don't know Metro Atlanta, you get to see Southern tree culture the things that have worked phenomenally well and then the disasters as well, right? <laughs> yeah, it's always quite something, especially when you're, you know, no matter what time of year you're going, but certainly certainly during the growing season when all of a sudden you're presented with the giant uh, magnolia trees and the crepe myrtles and, and all of those things that definitely you don't see in the northern climate. You know, but it's funny, plant enthusiasts always want what they can't have. And so, you know, we'll have many times Florida growers that will say, I just love that snow dance, the Japanese 
Japanese tree lilac, uh, and, and you're like, well, come on up to Minnesota and enjoy it up here because it's probably not going to be for you down in Florida so much. <laughs> um, that's that's part of the fun for sure. And, and actually, uh, one thing we didn't talk about, and I mentioned it only because we're talking about plants as a whole and their regionality, you see the same thing when you're going to other parts of the world. And it's just sure. It's just so incredible, uh, you know, when you go to whether it's, you know, parts of Europe or parts of Asia and all the things that are commonly used there. And then the ways that plants are used that in their markets that, that aren't typically, you know, what you might see at home. So it's always fun. Yeah, it's interesting. And you guys can both give me an opinion on this. I don't think in Europe they're so hardcore about native plants. I think they're more welcoming to explorations. Uh, we've heard that a couple of times, like heading to the Caucasus Mountains and parts of the Middle East to bring trees up to metropolitan London because they have conceded that London is a hotter, drier place than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. In so many parts of Europe, and whether it's the UK or in, in the Netherlands or or what have you, you know, gardening is a bit, you know culturally different too, and so how plants are used and how they're consumed are can be a little bit different too. Because you know, I think here in the states we kind of tend to look at the seasons or holidays as our seasons, and and I think in some of their cultures. Plants are viewed seasonally as week to week, not so much month to month. When I lived in England, um, we had large cedrus levini out the dormitory windows. I was there as an older student, so I was just intrigued. And they don't talk about plants like we do here in the sense of the nativity as much as they do about how it functions and what it does in the landscape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're so, I don't know. Go ahead and say it, Eva. <laughs> Prejudice <laughs> against things from other countries because I was in a class teaching um, Parodia Persica and a woman said, where's that from? And I said, well, it's from Persia. Where's Persia? Iran. I hate Iran. I would never have that in my garden. <laughs> oh, that's, that's sad. What? That's really sad. That is what? definitely, Parodia is the tree for the next hundred Par years. Parodia is, is a really yeah. hot tree right now. Tough. But, yeah. you know, when you look around in England and you see the native plants intermingled with the non-native plants, yeah. And you walk through Kew Gardens and how they talk about the variety and the range of plants that they have from all over the world. It's almost mm -hmm. like a pride of being able to intermingle all those plants Interesting. within on their island and have them be working with all the other plants to create an ecosystem of some type. Yeah, there, there's always like anything, there's a happy medium. Yeah. And, and and there's a balance, and and we think about that a lot as a company who either acquires genetics from other countries. Obviously, there are steps in the process to make sure that we're bringing those plants here safely, certainly. But also, then you know, bringing those plants in from a breeding standpoint or what have you. And one of the most recent genera that I can think of is, even though we're not, you know, I know we're not talking trees here, but distillium. Uh, yes. Distillium is yes. a it's almost a poster child example of how that can really improve and better the industry and the environment. It's distillium is a, a broadleaf evergreen shrub that uh, really is native environment is China was brought over here to the States about 15 years ago and says seed and that seed was germinated and evaluated. And certainly you want to make sure that, that it's not going to be an invasive situation or anything like that. And it's not, 
And Distillium is one of those groups of plants that fits so many functional needs. It can be a broadleaf screening plant. It can be a, a specimen plant in the garden. It has very little to no disease pressure, very little to no insect pressure, no invasiveness. It, it can, it's contained well. And the darn thing grows in almost any soil condition you throw at it, whether it has wet feet or dry feet. And so, boy, we would have really missed out if we hadn't uh, gone through that kind of discovery to bring that, that group of plants to, to market. Well, Oh, that is so cool. It, it's very cool. But the, here, here's the thing. We never know what plant's going to disappear here because of our environmental changes happening so fast. And if we're not doing the assisted migration ourselves for our local plants, you know, we're doing a lot of southern species, bringing them north here on the East Coast. But those kind of locations, if you have a problem with erosion and those plants that are typically there that are no longer there, you need something for erosion. Right. There's a plant that could fill that spot. And you need them there because that's going to protect the soil and, you know, the, the banks of, of a stream, for example. We right. have to think outside the box. We have to think bigger. We have to think global. But then we can also drill down local, too, at the same time. And you were talking yep. about Vitex earlier, about how it's a, it's a pollinator magnet. Any pollinator magnet's important right now. Any pollinator magnet is important, as long as it doesn't have those invasive qualities that'll create a havoc in our in our, our landscapes. Leave them come. Oh. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and that's our responsibility uh, as a, as a breeder and an introducer. You know, that goes without saying that if there's any hint of of invasiveness, it's it's really not something that we're we're going to get terribly excited about introducing. Number one, and and certainly ecologically, we're a part of the solution, not part of the problem. So that's that it's an opportunity for us to make sure that those plants aren't getting out either. And so you know that does drive some of the breeding and, and things that are you know being done and looking you know for you know sterility has been kind of a hot topic as of late and you know with certain groups and especially in the, the eastern uh, east, eastern u.s where there's more water more waterways and, and all those things you know that quite well sterility takes time you know and, and even then it, you know something may or may not be truly sterile you know you know something might produce seed that just isn't viable or or who knows what so you have to take it with a grain of salt and just you know make sure that you're evaluating for all those things as, as best you can and, and go from there well, this has been a great discussion, uh, and I'm so glad you touched on distillium, because as soon as this uh, recording ends, I'm going to lug the Michael Durr book off the shelf <laughs> and read up all about it. I'm not going to Google does it. Does he have distillium in there? I think he does, doesn't he? In the old book? Maybe not. I think he would. Yeah. Yeah, we've got some good varieties of distillium, so you can... you can. Uh... Oh, so you've done some selection with it then? Oh, yeah, yeah, we've got about six varieties of distillium. Yeah, oh, no, my I've, goodness. I've, okay. I think I still have one out in my garden. Yeah. yeah. My favorite is a variety called Cinnamon Girl. It's probably got the most cold tolerance. So if you were going to try one, that would be my favorite. Swing Low is another one uh, that's a personal favorite. Nice, low-growing, a broader leaf, but... Yeah, go to the First Edition's website and you'll see a bunch of them. Well, before we go, do you have a favorite tree that you'd like to think about when you're having a good day or a bad day? Or... <laughs> do we have another hour for this conversation? <laughs> and you could be, it could be just your favorite tree right now. Yeah, my favorite tree right now. I mean, I, I waxed poetic quite a lot about matador maple, but you know, one plant that I truly love, and I think it's, it kind of goes into that, you love plants you can't have, but there's a variety of magnolia that for whatever reason, I just, every spring I look forward to it and everywhere I go, I'm looking for it. It's a variety of magnolia. Actually, it came from Dr. Durr, as a matter of fact, years ago called Centennial Blush. And yeah. it, it's a, it, it's from, 
his work at the University of Georgia. The very first time I ever saw it, it was this beautiful stately plant. It was probably 25, maybe 30 feet tall uh, down in Georgia. I was there in the summertime, so I never got to see it flower then. But we actually have it in our brand. And uh, the beautiful thing about it is it works in the Southern Garden, but it works here in the, in the Twin Cities as well. And so there are very few plants that, that have that kind of range. ability to, to, to stretch the range like that. So today, my personal favorite is Centennial Blush, but ask me tomorrow. Was there a family, uh, was there a favorite tree growing up on the family farm? Was there a favorite tree growing up on the family farm uh, in northern Minnesota where I grew up? No. But what I will always remember to this day, and I, I probably am going to <laughs> illegitimize my my last hour here, actually Populus deltoides. And oh. it, it, you know, think about where I grew up. It's very heavy soil, very clay soil. Clay loam is our, our, our native soil there. You know, northern Minnesota, so you're, you're on the cusp of zone three. So our, our options were somewhat limited. But those cottonwoods are always just so stately and the bark on them is beautiful and they were just a staple. And so if I, when I think back to my childhood, the cottonwood uh, still still sticks out. I think that's fabulous that you brought that one up. I think we need to reflect back on those wonderful old trees that we remember from childhood. That's a really good one. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We're so delighted that you could be with us today. We'll look forward to all the new releases that Bailey's will be doing in the next several years. So I'm wishing you continued success and Bailey's continued success. And thanks again for being on our podcast. Well, thank you for giving me the platform. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. How's it going? Yep. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, <laughs> oh,